I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the BCG Henderson Institute. Welcome to our Thinkers and Ideas podcast, where we discuss important new books and new ideas in business. I'm very pleased today to be joined by Lauren Nordgren and David Schoenthal. Lauren is a Professor of Management and Organization at Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management, and his specialty is psychology, how we think and act, and is widely published on that topic. David is a clinical professor of innovation and entrepreneurship at Kellogg, and he runs a program which helps student entrepreneurs, as well as being a practitioner, working with all sorts of companies like IDEO and the Pritzker Venture Capital Group. So welcome, gentlemen, and congratulations on the book. Thank you. Thanks. So let me kick off by asking you, why did you write the book, The Human Element, Overcoming the Resistance That Awaits New Ideas? And and why in particular now? Yeah, so I'll take that one. And this collaboration started a few years ago. Lauren and I have known each other for quite a while, both working at the Kellogg School, and have been fascinated by the same problem, which is why is it that good ideas, clearly good ideas, fail to get traction with their intended audience? My interest in this came from the applied side and venture capital specifically, as well as innovation. Lauren, having a background as a psychologist, really was fascinated by the workings of the human brain and how our psychology impacts this. And together with his research background and my applied background, dove into the topic and the result is this book. Actually, let me ask a little follow-up question on that, given your interest in venture capital. Do you think a substantial portion of venture capital ideas fail to take off, not because of the substance of the idea, but because of this inability to cope with resistance to change? Or, or is it pretty much centered on the idea itself? Absolutely the latter. I think that when we talk about product market fit, our emphasis is that if we don't find product market fit, there's something wrong with the product. And so we emphasize that side. We had a feature, we had a benefit, we changed the price, we talk about it different when it comes to marketing. Sometimes the best ideas don't need any more magnetism. It's not the problem about magnetism or attraction of the idea. It's about making sure that the people we're designing these for have a way to integrate them into their lives seamlessly. And we know humans are resistant to change. Well, that brings us on to our next question, I guess, which is your book outlines two forces acting upon change. One of them is fuel, which is something that propels the adoption of an idea. And, and the other one is friction, something which prevents the adoption of an idea. And you seem to make the point that we tend to emphasize fuel more than friction. Why do we do that, Lauren? And what are the consequences of that? Yeah. So the central point of the book is that the instinct of the mind is that when you're trying to create change, when you're trying to influence people to buy into new things, we intuitively believe that the way you do that is to elevate value, to make the idea more attractive. So we call anything that makes an idea more attractive, we call that fuel. And we refer to this habit of the mind as thinking in fuel. In that fixation, we tend to miss the other half of the equation, the, the frictions that oppose change. Now, why do we do this? The reason we think in fuel is because the human mind has this interesting habit. It tends to understand behavior. It tends to explain behavior in terms of internal forces, things like intent and motivation. So the, the angry driver is a classic example. So imagine you're on the highway, someone cuts you off. They're driving erratically. You know, what is your first attribution? Your first attribution about that driver is that driver is a, is a jerk or whatever term you would plug in. What is much less salient or accessible is that perhaps this driver has a full bladder. 
Like we don't think in terms of these situational factors. We think in terms of motivation and intent. And Fuel maps onto this attribution style perfectly because imagine you launch a new internal change initiative or a new product and it's not as successful as you hoped. Well, why is that? Well, if we think in terms of fuel, then what we imagine is, ah, excitement is insufficient. And if that's the problem you imagine, then fuel solves that problem. You have to elevate appeal. That is why we largely think in terms of fuel. So that you just helped me make a connection I hadn't made, which is there's this famous book in psychology, uh, I probably got the title wrong, The Person in the Context. So essentially you're talking about the neglected importance of context here and understanding the adoption of ideas. Would that be a reasonable characterization? I think it is. We are thinking about the psychological forces that resist new ideas, but much of the source of that resistance often comes... So if you think in fuel, so fuel is about the idea itself, like how do we refine and elevate the idea? Thinking in terms of friction requires us to move our attention away from the idea and onto the audience. And that really requires understanding the audience in context. So yes. So let's follow the logic of your book and spend most of our time together on frictions. But before we do that, just a little bit on fuel, because you make a very interesting point that there are two types of fuel. There's progressive fuel, which attracts you towards the the idea. And there's aversive fuel that pushes you away from the status quo, if I get that right. Could you explain how this difference of progressive and aversive fuel plays out? Yeah, I would define them a little bit differently. Progressive fuel is very much what we think about when we're trying to make an idea more attractive. So we have entire divisions of companies focused on adding progressive fuel to business, marketing, advertising, sales, how to take an idea and make that idea more magnetic by talking about it in the right way or, or embodying it in the right way. Aversive fuel also motivates people to change, but playing up the negatives of a situation. So things like loss aversion. For example, if you're booking a hotel room online or a plane ticket online, and the website triggers you with these little nudges, like only one ticket left at this price or only one room left at this price, that's an aversive fuel. It's not creating magnetism for the idea. It's creating scarcity and the feeling that that idea will be taken away from you if you wait much longer. Well, I must ask one more question on this because my specialty is strategy and I, I come across this all of the time. I, I actually call it the, the baseline fallacy. But it's essentially the idea that the status quo is the low-risk option. So I find myself constantly trying to make this status quo less attractive than it naturally is, the natural default. So could I ask you, what are some of the specific ways in which you can avoid this stickiness of the status quo? What are ways in which you can overcome the stickiness of the status quo? I think one of our favorite techniques is something that we would call put the idea in context. So... Humans, we understand the world in relative terms. And one of the great mistakes we make when trying to get people to buy into new ideas, again, whether that is a, a new social movement, an internal change initiative, a new product, is we give people this one new option, we put it in front of them, and we begin to sell the benefits, explain the value. When we offer people one path, there is an implicit point of comparison generally, which is the status quo, precisely what you've identified. And unfortunately for the innovator, people tend to prefer the familiar over the unfamiliar. So that means anytime we are offering people one new path, their at least implicit unconscious point of comparison is, what do I prefer? This thing that is known, that is comfortable, that is easy, that is familiar versus this 
unknown, effortful option. When we allow the human mind to, to compare new against the status quo, that is generally a, a friction operating against change. One of the ways we try and break this down is to put ideas in a more favorable comparison. A very simple alarm indicator our audience might use is if you are giving people one thing, it means they are comparing that new thing against the status quo. What we might consider instead is how can we put our new idea in a more favorable context. And that might involve things like having them compare this new thing to more ideal, exaggerated, extreme options, or it may involve helping people see this idea in the context of what we would call inferior reference points. So often what the innovator does is you spot the problem, then you go out and identify the best alternative. You give people that one alternative and expect them to see the self-evident value in it. Now, one of the reasons you like that alternative so much is because you understand it in the context of the inferior options, but we don't give them that. So another approach is to make sure people understand the full context because it breaks comparison away from the familiar status quo. Okay, so let's move on to frictions. You list four, inertia, presumably that's the resistance to change and effort, you know, how much effort does it take to implement the new idea, emotional resistance, and then reactance, pushing back just because somebody is pushing. How would you know which of these is the dominant factor in a particular situation? And are there patterns in terms of which sort of situations generate which patterns of friction, or do you generally have to attend to all of these possibilities? Yeah. So you did a nice job referencing the four frictions. The only modification I would make is the first one is exactly what we were just talking about before, which is inertia, our tendency to stick with the status quo, despite the fact that we know that the status quo might be imperfect. The second is effort, how much exertion, physical, mental exertion is required to adopt the idea. The third being emotion, which is the undesired negative feelings we cause in others by adopting the change, because anytime you're going to do something new, there's always anxiety and trepidation. And the fourth is something we refer to as reactance, which is people's aversion to being changed by others. Sometimes the type of friction that you're likely to encounter is self-evident because of the context of the change you're trying to incite. So if you're trying to roll out a new organizational design and that change is being put on your employees, you can be absolutely certain that reactance will be present because that is a social, a social friction that shows up when people feel like they are being changed. But it also might include effort, which is how much effort is it going to take for me to get up the learning curve and how hard will it be to change my behavior from before, which references inertia. And if I feel a little bit anxious about it, that conjures emotional friction as well. So in this example, and I think you'll find in many examples, most all frictions are present in some degree or another when there is a change involved. It really depends on the magnitude of the change. But which frictions are the most exacerbated or the most in need of remedy is quite circumstantial. And sometimes the symptoms of the presence of friction are different than you might anticipate. Sometimes frictions are actually hiding in plain sight, and it requires some tools and nuances that we discuss in the book to figure out which frictions are actually at play. One of the interesting points you make is that sometimes effort is not a friction, it's actually a positive attribute. So I, I may like something because I feel rewarded by doing an enormous amount of work and learning a lot. You know, sometimes in marketing, that's called questing. You know, it's the tribulations of the journey, which is part of the attraction of the experience. Is that common? And in what sort of situations does that tend to manifest itself? 
common in certain situations, less common in others. I think, for example, when it comes to learning a new skill or certain types of recreation, for example, if it were really easy to get to the final round of Zelda, that wouldn't be nearly as gratifying as the weeks and weeks that a gamer takes mastering levels and getting to that end result. The value and the emotional high we feel is directly attributable to the amount of effort we put into the process. Same with things like getting fit or writing this book, for example. There are certain ends that wouldn't be as profound if the means didn't require some effort. But I would say that that is the case when we deliberately sign up to go on a journey of discovery or evolution. When it comes to everyday experiences, we actually, especially now more than ever, and this gets back to a little bit of the question you asked at the beginning, why now? Now more than ever, consumers are expecting every experience or service they engage with to be frictionless. And even small, seemingly innocuous frictions can make huge impacts in a process or a product experience. And so I think by default, we expect frictionless unless we actually deliberately and consciously sign up for friction as a means to feeling more gratified at the end. One idea that occurs to me is that, you know, sometimes entrepreneurs talk about frictions as something to be quantified and analyzed, which is part of the assessment of an opportunity. So I guess one way of thinking about your frictions are they are attributes of the context, not of the idea itself. But is there something also structural about frictions? Can we take a particular idea and say, oh, this, the emotional reactance or whatever is going to be a friction in, in this particular case? And can we make that part of the assessment of an idea, the intrinsic difficulty of exploring or rolling out a particular idea? Yeah, absolutely. So if we think of the anatomy of an idea or innovation, we can think of any new idea as having four dimensions, and each of those dimensions will have a corresponding friction. And seeing the problem in this way helps us anticipate and diagnose where the frictions reside. So the first dimension of an idea is what is the degree of change this new idea represents? So if we are talking about digital transformation, that might represent a radical departure from the status quo. Other ideas are really tweaks on what's come before. Answering that question will largely determine the level of inertia within. Again, that idea that we distrust the unfamiliar, so radical change requires us to buy into more unfamiliar ideas. The second dimension would be what is the cost of implementation? So is it one extra step or is it learning a new process or procedure? If you ask that question, you will begin to anticipate, diagnose the level of effort-based friction in that idea, something that requires deep commitment, traveling farther distance, learning a whole new program or routine is going to face more resistance, not because of the value of the idea, but because of its implementation cost. Then we would ask, what is the level and what kinds of negative emotions might this new idea produce? And that would help us anticipate the degree of emotional friction it might face. And then finally, we might ask, what is the relationship between the audience and the innovator? And does the audience feel as though they have arrived upon this idea on their own accord? Or has this idea been pushed upon them? And the answer to that question largely determines the degree of reactance within it. So the big picture point is, by thinking about the dimensions of these ideas and asking these questions, you can begin to diagnose the frictions that reside within them. 
And maybe just to build on this point really quickly, we have a tool in the book and, and also downloadable on the book's landing page called a friction map. And what Lauren and I have begun doing with, with companies to, to a lot of success is at the beginning stages of a project. So I imagine much of your audience, Martin, are trying to incite some sort of change inside of their organization. As you kick off that project, looking at this friction map, how might answering the questions that Lauren has just put out there help you forecast where these frictions will exist so that as you go through the process of working on the project or implementing the result of the project, you can have your eye on the horizon and actually go to mitigate some of these frictions that are likely to pop up if you were to ignore them during the beginning of the project. So as I tried to do that while reading your book, I bumped into the question, am I dealing with perceived frictions here or objective frictions? And you know, which tends to be more important? Typically, when you work with companies, are you finding that it's mostly an issue of perception or mostly an issue of substance, or does it just depend? I would say that when we are talking about human behavior, that is a reflection of perception. So let's take the idea of effort. Let's imagine the Kellogg Business School wants faculty to innovate classes. And maybe in reality, the process of developing and innovating new classes is, is relatively easy. But if faculty don't know what first step to take, if they don't know who to email to initiate that process, if they don't know what forms to fill out, if they don't even know where to begin to answer that question, in their mind, that is a deeply effortful process. So I would say that although at times their perception is a reflection of reality, the first concern is what do people perceive? And that is why the book is called The Human Element, is that what you as an innovator perceive is a low effort step or a low inertia project is not necessarily at all what your audience might perceive. And the smallest of things can make the biggest impact regardless of the benefit of the change. So for example, one of my favorite examples from this book, we went out and interviewed a bunch of UI UX designers about wh whose jobs it is, by the way, to take friction out of digital experiences. What is the single, we asked them, what is the single greatest UI UX innovation in the last six months, six years. And the answer that we got overwhelmingly from these UI UX designers was the, the feature of autocomplete during an e-commerce transaction, because they noticed that every field you had to fill out in a new transaction, if you didn't store your data on a website, or if you're visiting a retailer for the first time, putting your first name in a field has friction involved, putting your last name in a field has friction involved. When you get to like two or three or four of these steps, it can be something as innocuous as adding your email a second time that causes somebody to be like, you know what, this isn't for me. This is too effortful. And you as the retailer, you're like, but there's so much goodness at the other end of this when you get the product or service that you signed up for. They never would perceive that adding a second email address is the thing that's causing 20% of their audience to churn. So to Lauren's point, perception is really important. And in some senses, it almost doesn't matter if it's objective or perceived. It's really about what your audience feels that you've got to contend with. I wonder whether there's an ethical dimension to your techniques, because in a sense, you seem to be, to be talking about a more effective way of persuading people to indulge in change. And in many cases, like the uh, removing the extraneous email field, that, that's, you know, I guess, a, a simple good thing for the consumer. But I guess on the margin, there are possibilities of manipulation or bias or misinformation here. Do you have to take any precautions to stop your techniques appearing to be coercive to your target audience? So we thought about this a great deal. And one insight that came up early in our conversation is that 
David and I are not ethics scholars, and therefore we would not presume to draw these ethical standards for anyone. But inevitably, when you think about behavior change and influence, you have to take seriously that issue of ethics. And we have standards we think about in our own practitioner work. And so two standards you might consider are, number one, is the practice honest or deceptive? And is it designed to mislead? And the second standard you might think about is, well, what is its intent? What is its desire to do? And, you know, the kinds of initiatives we are interested in and get excited by, and I suspect most of the audience is thinking about, are driven by a belief that you see a better way to do things. But, you know, these techniques are like a hand. A hand can help, a hand can hurt. The intent matters a great deal. I would also say that friction removal and its very nature, anything that feels like a push is going to trigger reaction. And so friction removal, as opposed to maybe as a point of comparison, nudge style, right? Like the kind of faux scarcity, the faux social proof, the techniques that have proliferated, particularly the online world. That's a very different approach. That's a fuel-based approach. Our approach is to try and remove frictions, which I think largely differentiates us from those kinds of techniques that, that can stray into that unethical, manipulative course of domain. I think that last point is really important. We're not trying to manufacture someone's desire to do something. We're just trying to remove the obstacles that stand in the way of getting it done. There's a parallel with consulting, I'm not sure whether you're aware of, but there's this concept of self-discovery in consulting, which is you can tell somebody the right answer, but it's much better if you provide them the means for them to discover it because they'll be more motivated to implement. So presumably that's, would you say that's a, an anti-reactance philosophy? So you can't see this, but Lauren and I are looking at the screen to find out who's going to answer this question. Yes, that is an anti-reactance remedy. And Lauren is, is more of a, an expert on this than I, but what I'll say is self-generated arguments are always going to be more powerful than an argument a marketer or a salesperson or a consultant makes on an idea's behalf. And so maybe Lauren, if you want to add a little bit on to that, this is your, this is your jam. Yeah. Ideas are like kids. We always like our own better than others. This book is challenging people to think about influence and change in some new ways. And the conventional approach to influence is you as the innovator, you as the change agent, taking an idea and putting this idea onto others. It's you making the argument for other people. But that conflicts with our fundamental human nature, which is when we do that, people feel that push, that exertion, and, and often the instinct is to push back. So the way we try and disarm that experience of reactance is to, it comes by different names, but I, as the psychologist, will call this self-persuasion. And it's the fundamental insight that people are most profoundly persuaded by ideas that they generate themselves. And we have a variety of techniques for doing this from co-design, something we call asking yes questions. But at its heart, if to give one sense of how you begin to lead through self-persuasion is we need to begin the conversation at the points of alignment. By that, I mean, it's where is the shared agreement? Very often we begin the conversation at the point of misalignment or disagreement. And now it's a fundamentally, it's like debate. I'm trying to push and you're trying to push back. We need to find common ground and we need to find ways 
to invite people into the process. And I think you see this show up in consulting projects in particular, and I can speak to this from my work at IDEO. You've got the project kickoff at the beginning to set expectations and get everybody aligned around the brief that you're going to be executing. And then presumably you've got project check-ins along the way where you share out and you might have a workshop to help you have your client feel like they're participating and shaping the brief even further or making some, some selections based on an array of options that are presented. And by checking in along the way and keeping them involved along the way, that makes the finished product of the strategy or the solution so much easier to adopt because there's a sense of inventorship versus just receivership of that idea. And so even the behaviors we demonstrate in good consulting practices are all in an effort to do exactly this. So I imagine the, uh, the ideas that we've talked about today will be very appealing to our audience. You know, every company is in a process of change. We know that 75% of major change efforts fail. So if we think about a straw man situation of a say, a CEO with a major change initiative, maybe a very classically structured one, essentially a project management approach, looking to deploy some of your ideas, where, where would they begin? What would be the first two or three things they should do to incorporate the perspectives we've discussed today? Well, step one would be diagnosis, would be thinking about the idea and asking which of the frictions are likely present here. I suspect, so the first question they might ask is, what is the degree of change that this represents for the audience? If it is transformative change, that suggests high levels of inertia. And then you might start thinking about the techniques you might use to reduce inertia from that idea. These are things like, can you give people time to acclimate to the new idea? So ideas are a bit like beer. So the first time you have beer, most people do not like the taste of, of alcohol the first time they have it. The same is true of new ideas. But now imagine if the very first time you had a sip of alcohol, you had to make a binding decision as to whether you support it for your life moving forward. That would be the worst time for the alcohol industry for you to make that choice. I would argue that's what a lot of leaders do when they unveil an idea and then very close in time, people now need to endorse or reject that idea. So you might begin to acclimate and find techniques like starting small. And we could go through each of these. I would then ask, what is the, the cost of implementation? And very importantly, how can we find ways to reduce those costs? A phenomenon we talk about in the book is something called effort neglect. And it's the idea that we really do not anticipate how powerful very small changes to the effort calculus can have such a profound impact on what people do. Then you might ask, what kinds of negative reactions will this elicit? And really importantly, and David can speak to this beautifully, is not just thinking about reactions to the, the functional aspects of the idea, but broader sort of social and emotional implications. And then finally, the kind of last step in the process is thinking about how am I going about doing this? Am I, am I pushing this idea or am I inviting people in? So for me, step one, perhaps then hand it over to David, is really to diagnose what frictions are here, making sure that my approach to change isn't inadvertently magnifying some of these frictions, and how can we remove them from the process? I think Lauren said it beautifully. I think the only thing that I would add on top of that, going back to that 75% of change initiatives fail, is that usually the reason they fail is because the frictions become clear way too late to address them. One of the things we're trying to do with this work 
is make these frictions front of mind at the beginning of a change initiative, because when those remedies are integrated into the initiative itself, the change is more likely to be successful. By the time these frictions show up, in many cases, it's too late. So being proactive in the diagnosis versus reactive in the diagnosis. Well, thanks for sharing with us, Lauren and David. It's been a fascinating discussion, a very important topic, I think, and a very universal topic, resistance to change and what one can do about it. I've been speaking to Lauren Nordgren and David Schoenthal on their new book, The Human Element from Wiley, which was just published in October of this year. And I think it makes a fascinating read for anyone who's trying to diffuse new ideas or create change in organizations. So thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you, Martin.